Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Ditch the clowns on the left and the jokers on the right and join Michael Smirconish right here in the middle. This is the Smirconish podcast for independent minds. On October the 1st, Ken Stern wrote a piece for Vanity Fair. I'm looking at a a printed version. Democrats' last best hope to keep control of Congress may be Connor Lamb, who joins me now. Congressman, so great to have you here. Thanks so much. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Not only are you currently representing a district in suburban Pittsburgh, the 17th, but you're a candidate for the U.S. Senate, hence the Vanity Fair reference. You are running for the seat held currently by Pat Toomey, who is not going to run again. He's retiring. Uh, And indeed, the winner of this Pennsylvania Senate battle could determine the balance of power for the entire country. Is that one of the reasons why you decided you would take the shot? Yes. um, I've been working on a lot of the issues in the House of Representatives that we all talk about every day. And uh, you see them. They don't even get debated in the Senate. It's not like the Senate holds votes on them and, and they don't pass. The Senate has just become this place of incredible gridlock, and I would like to see it return to a place where the most important issues in public life actually receive a fair hearing and a fair debate, and I think I could do that if I win the seat. Let's remind everybody, you were elected in 2018 in a special election that received national attention, right? And then very quickly you had to run again for the full term, and you did and were uh, I guess I'd say reelected, but elected now for the full term. And then in 2020, running against Scott Parnell, you were elected to another full term in the Congress. That's right. So this is my fourth campaign in about uh, <laughs> three years, I guess. So it's got to be brutal. A, yeah, it's a, you know, it's uh, it's definitely not for the faint of heart. But um, I had a lot of training in the Marine Corps and growing up in a strict Catholic family on how to take on things like this. And I have a lot of good help. So it makes it possible. Parnell gets a lot of FaceTime on Fox. He's running for the U.S. Senate uh, as a Republican, obviously. But the, the possibility exists that the statewide U.S. Senate race could come down to two individuals, two candidates who in the last cycle ran against one another for Congress. That's right. And I think it's an important aspect of this primary on the Democratic side is that I can tell the voters of our state, uh, I've beaten this guy once. I know I can beat him again. Um, And, you know, he is a a good illustration of the dangers posed to our government and to the Senate as an institution if you allow these acolytes of Donald Trump uh, to get into our government. They will continue the insurrection from the inside. Uh, That is what he is all about. There is no place for him in the United States Senate. And I think it's important for our Democratic primary voters to choose someone they can feel very confident will beat him, and that's what I'm offering. Does your running as the representative of the 17th District pretty much assure where Pennsylvania is going to lose one House seat that it will be the 17th? No. uh, I think a lot of people get that wrong because 
it's not going to be politicians behind closed doors drawing the map this time. It's almost certainly going to happen in our state Supreme Court. And they showed in 2018 they'll draw a map fairly according to objective criteria. So I, I feel pretty good about what they're going to produce at the end of the day. The bio, central casting kind of stuff. You're 37, young family, undergraduate work at Penn, then Penn Law School, Marine, Prosecutor, Congress. What did I leave out? Um, one of four children uh, in a very loving family that cared a lot about public service, not just politics, but, you know, my mom's a nurse, my brother and sister are teachers, you know, I mean, that was really how I was raised was to think about how can you do the most good for the community? And that's all I've tried to do. When you graduated from law school, was it right into the Marine Corps? Yes. Uh, did you always have in mind that you wanted to be a public servant, that you would run for Congress, that maybe someday you'd want to run for the U.S. Senate? Not exactly. I, I always wanted to be in government and public service. I, I was raised to think of that as a high calling, but I, I would have thought that I would have stayed probably as a prosecutor or a military officer more of my career. I loved that kind of the direct engagement in right versus wrong and serving the country. But um, particularly after Trump was elected and, and I was seeing, I was prosecuting a lot of heroin trafficking and heroin overdose cases. I was just seeing the what was happening in, to these communities in Western Pennsylvania where I had grown up and knew people and I knew that they had given Trump a big share of his victory and I couldn't accept that. And and when the congressional seat came open, I, I saw a chance to do something about it and, you know, hopefully start to change the course of life in Western Pennsylvania. And now I think that about the state as a whole. Our state is going to determine a lot about the future politics of this nation. Uh, and I think we owe it to the nation to, uh, you know, to put the Trump years behind us as quickly as possible. My uh, folks are from the Pennsylvania coal region uh, in northeastern Pennsylvania. And, you know, Luzerne County arguably is a county, if you had to pinpoint one, that turned the election to Donald Trump in 2016. In fact, Ben Bradley Jr. wrote a great book called The Forgotten, trying to explain what what is the appeal and, and, you know, where are these folks politically and how do you get them back into more of a mainstream fold? What What's your short explanation as to why Trump has been able to tap into, whether it's Western Pennsylvania, Northeastern Pennsylvania, those constituencies. You know, I, I felt like I understood it the first time. It's a lot harder to understand today, five years in. I mean, the first time I thought it was a very simple case of um, we had a lot of regions where both governments of both parties have not delivered for people economically since the collapse of coal and steel. And that kind of is what ties together northeastern Pennsylvania with southwestern Pennsylvania. Um, and you add to that an opioid epidemic that was killing tens of thousands of people a year. People sent their kids to fight in wars in Iraq and Afghanistan with no clear result. Eight and a half million people lose their homes in 20, 2008 and nobody goes to jail. There was clearly a feeling that uh, our national government needed shaken up uh, by somebody from the outside. That part I understood. Five years later, when you know we saw this guy commit federal crimes on almost a daily basis in office and lie and never deliver a single thing for the people that he campaigned for, um, it's harder for me to understand who still supports him and why. But that basic problem of feeling like our government isn't delivering um, and people no longer believing that it can, no longer believing the best about our country, uh, remains a problem. And, and that's the problem that I am looking to solve. I, I believe to the depths of my soul that this generation of people can deliver in the same way that the previous generations did. Um, but we have to work at it and we have to fight for it. I mean, that's what these elections are really about is a vision of the future that says the government's going to play a positive role in this country. We're going to right some wrongs. We're going to give people a fair chance. Um, and that itself is, is kind of up for grabs at this point. 
you're often described as a democratic moderate. First of all, do you wear that as a badge of honor? It's not my favorite word, to tell you the truth. How would you um, describe yourself? I, I think of myself more, I guess, as being um, as being an active, an activist. You know, in the, in the military, they talk about having a bias for action. And I think if you're a moderate or a centrist or whatever word they use, to me, it's because that's the place where deals get done, where action is made, where progress is made. Um, so I don't think about it so much as a point on the spectrum. It's more like I'm a I'm a person who's willing to punch the ball over the goal line at the end of the day. Okay, so, let me let me ask it this way: You're running for the U.S. Senate. With what current member of the Senate do you most closely identify? Yeah, I don't I don't know if there is one, but a lot of times I I like to point to Sherrod Brown from our neighboring state of Ohio uh, because I think he's someone who's proven. Philosophically, he believes what a lot of Democrats believe, which is that we have to fight very hard for labor rights, for civil rights, for voting rights, that the government can play an active role in in making us a better society. But he's able to do it in a way that relates to people who are maybe skeptical of some of those ideas, and he does it from a place of respect. Um, and he's very deeply knowledgeable. And there are other senators I very much admire, too, but he usually comes first to mind. When Connor Lamb looks at Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, he thinks what? I think that they have different views than me on a lot of the current questions. Um, I also think that they represent states that are not easy for Democrats to win, and people on our side easily overlook that or underrate that. Um, and I think at the end of the day, if we want to get stuff done, we have to deal with them, and I think we should deal with them um, respectfully, but but never setting aside the truth you know, about what we believe, is that we th- really think these investments are necessary for the future, and it's not a time to pinch pennies. So um, I respect them, but I also disagree with them about a lot of things that we're uh, talking about right now. So you're running in a multi-candidate field, right? Democratic primary, of course, will come first in Pennsylvania. One opponent is John Fetterman. He is the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania. It occurs to me, and I wonder what Connor Lamb thinks of this, that I see it almost like a proxy war for Biden and Bernie. And you know which of the two I would associate you with and which of the two I would associate him with. What do you think of that? Uh, I'm honored by that comparison. If you're associating me with President Biden, um, to me, one of the things he showed was that uh, if you work hard enough, you can build you can make this about teamwork. To me, he was someone that that premised his candidacy, not so much on being a moderate at the center of things ideologically, but being someone who is capable in a personality sense of working with people across the spectrum and bringing this party together. And the great hunger that I see in the primary phase is people want a little more unity. They don't want to feel like the Democrats are in disarray or at each other's throats. And so we're very much trying to build a campaign along those lines of, you know, I'm the type of guy who's going to do the real old-fashioned work of meeting with people, listening to them, understanding their concerns, being a voice for them, and ultimately bringing this party together. Politically speaking, is Pennsylvania, in your view, more of a Bernie state or a Biden state? A Biden state. No How question. come? Um, I mean, I think he he proved it with his win here, the fact that he's from here. Um, if I remember correctly, I think Hillary beat Bernie here pretty soundly in uh, 2016. And um, it, it's just where our folks are. They're, they're practical uh, working people at the end of the day, which is which is not to you know take any shots about some of the things that Bernie fights for, but I just think there's a uh, there's a personality to Pennsylvania Democrats that's proven through people like Biden or or Senator Casey, you know, or even even former Senator Specter, whose seat this is, that became a Democrat at the end of his life, uh, you know, 
we're a uh, we're a middle of the road working class type of party here in Pennsylvania. Are you more concerned that Donald Trump steals the 2024 election or that he runs and he wins it outright? That's a great question. I, I, I guess the first one, I mean, I, I'm concerned about him for a lot of reasons, but I think that what they are trying to do, and this doesn't get talked about enough, with all of these voting bills in the different states, uh, with the, the fraudulent um, attack on our system here in Pennsylvania that the Republicans call an audit, uh, it's not so much about actually making it harder for individual people to vote, although it is about that. It it really is about laying the groundwork for them to just lie about the election results in both 2022 and 2024 and have their people believe it. By doing two years worth of essentially campaigning about these audits and these laws and all the other kind of thing, they're priming people to just never accept an election result again unless it goes their way which will then make it easier for people to do things like commit violence in furtherance of stealing an election, more January 6th in more places around the country. I think that's what they're going for. So you came in on the tail end of a conversation that I was having with listeners about whether the Biden administration is doing enough to protect democracy. And you heard some calls, some conservative callers, who said this is all ballot security, this is not ballot intimidation. I almost brought you into the conversation then, but I'll bring you in now. What would you have said to the callers that you heard 20 minutes ago? I think that um, there's a couple of points people need to know that came out of those questions. One is uh, several of them had to do with things like why not require a driver's license uh, or an ID. It's because really the answer is that you have a constitutional right to vote. You don't have a constitutional right to have a driver's license or a state-issued ID. It's just how our system works. The constitutional right to vote is sacred. People have died for it. Um, it is absolute. So anytime the government wants to make it harder on you, uh, they have a high burden to justify why that is. And I think you were getting to that in some of your responses that it's not that easy for a lot of people to vote, a lot of working people, single moms, people with unusual schedules, which is more and more common today than it was 40 or 50 years ago. That's why so many states have adopted things like mail-in voting and early voting. They did it long before 2020. Republican states have been voting by mail forever. Florida has very liberal uh, state voting laws. And, and by the way, they don't always lead to Democratic victories. I mean, there are a lot of places where expanding the electorate and making it easier to vote um, have allowed the Republicans to do quite well. So it's, it's important for people to get that. It's not a partisan thing. It's about your constitutional right at the end of the day. Congressman Connor Lamb in studio with me. So, Congressman, Saturday on CNN, Jim Clyburn was my guest. And before I brought him on, I I did a commentary where first I said, I I ended up pissing off everybody. I said, Donald Trump tried to steal the election. He's going to try and steal it again. I made that case from an evidentiary standpoint as clearly as I could. So that angered, of course, all the Republicans. And then I said, things are not going well for Joe Biden. And among my data points was to speak of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, although overdue, having been haphazard, the border being in crisis, 1.5 million, we've reached a record high level, Uh, inflation on the rise, whether you look at bacon or whether you look at car rentals, children's shoes, et cetera, et cetera, COVID not under control, notwithstanding that I think he's right with regard to his vaccine mandates. Um, and and I have to say that I, I don't think he's projected strength on these issues, and I'm sure you would push back on all of the above. But this is all the setup to me then saying, give him a win for crying out loud. Give him the one point two trillion dollar infrastructure and call it a day and then fight for the bigger package if you want. 
I know that today there are progressives and moderates getting together in the House. I know you're a problem solver, which I think that's a a good thing. That's a caucus. Um, But what do you say to my argument, which is take the 1.2 and run? I think it would be great if we could have done that. Um, I would have loved to vote for that. I would love if the money was already flowing to my state. Pennsylvania has some of the oldest, you know, rustiest infrastructure in the country, and we very much need the jobs. This was an issue I worked on all year as part of the Problem Solvers Caucus that you mentioned. Um, but the fact is now we're, we're past that, and I think part of the reason that we're past it is President Biden has a better view than anyone else into – the real feelings and positions of Senator Sinema and Manchin on one end and the progressives on the other end. And he made the calculation uh, that you couldn't just pass the infrastructure and then hope to do the rest of it on another day. And he feels very strongly about the rest of the agenda that he proposed and campaigned on, um, as do I. And so I think, he, you know, he made the realistic calculation that you needed one to pass the other. And that's what he's trying to pull off now. It's hard uh, and it doesn't look good to see all the sausage making. But at the end of the day, my point is at least we're making sausage. You know, Trump never did that. So. You're, you're, you're for both. Whether it's 3.5 or comes in at 2.1, you want both of these bills. Yeah, I'm for the programs themselves. I mean, these, these numbers that get thrown around are all 10-year numbers that mean very little, uh, you know, on a year-in and year-out basis. But particularly the concept of uh, universal pre-K for three- and four-year-olds, it's, that's some of the best money that taxpayers can spend just on a basic public policy sense of what, what you get for that investment. Um, raising wages for the people that do home health care, which will be the fastest growing job here in the state of Pennsylvania in the next decade. Uh, programs like that are, are just as essential to the workers, the working life of our economy as the roads and bridges are. And I, I see them all as one piece. You know that, that Senator Manchin said this week that he thinks that there needs to be a work requirement for the child tax credit as well as a $60,000 uh, means test threshold, call it whatever you will. What do you think about that? Uh, I'm not for it. I understand why he's saying that, but I think that uh, with respect to children in our society, we should take care of them simply for being children, and that's what the child tax credit is about. Is uh, it's not cheap for parents that make a hundred grand, for example, and live in the Philly suburbs to take care of their kids, to get everything they need for school. To you know, I mean, there's a lot of costs that are really escalating in our society, and this is a way we can help people pretty directly who need it, it's also very affordable. I mean, people sort of forget about our bill that we proposed tax increases on the biggest corporations and the wealthiest Americans that cover all of this. So it's really not a question of what we can afford. It's just a question of what we're willing to do. And if we're willing to ask, you know, Amazon and other companies that literally pay nothing in federal income taxes, nothing, that's not an exaggeration. Uh, As long as we're willing to ask them to pay a little more, we can afford to take care of a lot of families with kids, not just the people in the bottom quartile. I highlighted uh, a change in Gallup polling that I think you'll find interesting. Maybe you'll find troublesome. So a Gallup poll last year found that 54% of Americans thought government, quote, should do more to solve the nation's problems. 54%. That's the highest level in nearly three decades of history that Gallup has on that question. This year, same question. The number has dipped to 43%. And and I'm sure if you win the nomination for the U.S. Senate, you're going to get tagged as being a big spending. He's not a moderate. He's a liberal. We can't afford this. And get ready for we don't want to go the way of Europe. So you'll say what when that day comes? I'll ask people uh, if they like their Social Security and want it to be strengthened and if they like their Medicare and want it to be strengthened. Because one thing I can guarantee you is that the Sean Parnells of the world – Uh, are simply the next generation of Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and people that have wanted to destroy these crucial government programs 
for years that keep seniors fed and well cared for throughout their lives. So you don't talk about government in the abstract. You talk about the good things that we're actually doing. And Social Security is a clear example from, you know, where I come from in the west of Pennsylvania is a little bit of an elderly region. But, you know, if we if we enact uh, pre-K, for example, um, getting kids in school at that age for free uh, in a way that allows single moms into the workforce and that, you know, just obviously helps the kids become better educated. Uh, that's not a thing people are going to want to take away, and these people will be for taking it away. Have you paid close attention to the Facebook whistleblower? Are you conversant about Section 230? Yes. Are you worried about the algorithms? And if so, give me Connor Lamb's quick take. I think that, uh, first of all, it was an act of, of great courage, and I'm really happy that the whistleblower came forward. I hope more do. Um, to me, Facebook is becoming a, a toxic product that absolutely needs to be regulated. And, you know, you referenced 230, which is the idea of holding them liable for the content on their site. I think it's critically important. And and even if we only change 230 to apply somewhat narrowly to Facebook and maybe a couple of other entities, it's something we have to do because there's no doubt that they're causing harm. The question is simply, how do you stop the harm? Uh, And it's, it's very difficult to, for example, take their algorithms, examine them, and force them to change them in some way. I don't. It, it, we could develop the technical capacity to do that. It's not easy. Uh, if you just let them be held directly liable in civil litigation or, or even in criminal litigation uh, for the consequences of what they – and they do uh, – people need to know they allow it to be published. They always try to make it seem like users just randomly write things and they can't control it. No, they design the algorithms – to amplify what these users write because it's good for their business model. And so if you make them all of a sudden liable for that, it's like when, you know, the tobacco companies became liable for their product. They're going to change their behavior, and I think it's something we absolutely have to do. Quick final question. My view, you want to be a cop, a firefighter, a nurse, a doctor, somebody on the front line of serving the public, you need to be vaccinated, and that ought to come with a mandate from your employer. Yeah, I agree with you completely, and especially the police have been in the news a lot the last couple of days. Your whole job is about protecting other people. You sign up for that job because you're willing to say, it's not about me, it's about the community. And the vaccine is simply another instance where that is true, and and they need to recognize it. And I think for people that you know, are not willing to do that for the good of their community, uh, it's time to move on to another job. Congressman Connor Lamb, thanks so much for coming by. Come back. Thanks for having me. Good luck. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds. Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 